Welcome to the podcast of Lancaster Brethren in Christ Church, located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. LBIC is a community being transformed by the love of Jesus, sharing this love with all people. We want this podcast to be an extension of our community and a connection with familiar voices. Together, we want to think about how to follow Jesus in our particular moment. So enjoy the podcast. We're grateful to have you join us as a part of the LBIC family. I am faced again with the same litany of tired old temptations towing their attendant shames. And in such times, I am left, O Lord, wondering if I have somehow missed your call completely and where I might just as well abandon this pilgrim path entirely. For I fear that you must see me as I see myself, unfit for any service to you or to your people or to this world. So tell me, God, where is the disconnect between the life rife with breathtaking demonstrations of your power that I am told should be the hallmark of my walk with you? Where is the disconnect between those fantastic notions and the reality of my actual life, which is filled with petty frustrations, mundane responsibilities, and constant reminders of my own failure to wear well the name of Christ? Was it wrong that I should even desire to do great things for you, Jesus? Am I amiss to plead that I might be mightily used in your works? Do I need more faith, more righteousness, more of your spirit? Or have you simply judged me unworthy of your service? Where, O Lord, do I go from here? And in the liturgy, there's a a pause and a moment for you just kind of sit with that part of the prayer, and then uh, someone speaks back to you some other words. Uh, And I can give that to you later if you would like it. But Joe never spoke at Catalyst. He eventually left the church of the celebrity pastor, finished his degree, and the last that I heard, uh, he was having conversations about Jesus with those whom he was waiting tables on. I share these two stories uh, because I think many of us struggle with the reality of our life with God compared to what we think our life with God should be. So we have this ideal or this idea that we've conjured up ourselves that have all of these different influences whether it be uh, from pastors or books or people that we look up to or just the ideas of culture that kind of influence our understandings. But we have these ideas about what our life with God should be. And we struggle with the disconnect between the two of them. But I want to suggest maybe this morning that the, the lack of greatness and the working out of our life with God in the everyday is precisely what life with God looks like. The small daily acts of obedience as we're on our way to something, as we're pilgriming, are precisely the way of Jesus. This morning launches us into the season of Advent. Uh, Fleming Rutledge describes Advent this way. She says, Advent is the time that is the in-between, between the first coming of Christ and the second coming, between darkness and dawn, between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. It is not the time of fulfillment. It is the time of waiting. It's the time of waiting. Our desire for greatness, I think, is misplaced. 
We think we have to be, uh, make ourselves something great to become something great, but there already is something great. There already is someone who is great. And the purpose of our life then is to dwell in and reflect on God who is already great. Here's two readings from the Old Testament this morning from uh, Isaiah chapter 2 and then Psalm 122. These are descriptions of greatness, and this greatness doesn't have to do anything with us. It doesn't have to do anything with us becoming great, but it has everything to to do with the character of God, with the nature of God, with who God is, and greatness coming from the origin and the origination of God himself. So Isaiah 2, verses 2 and following say this. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He'll teach us his ways so that we might walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Psalm 122, I rejoiced, I rejoiced with those who said to me, come, let's go up to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord, according to the statute given to Israel. There stand the thrones of judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. The, promise, uh, the, the prophet and the psalmist both describe these places, the places of Zion or the places of Mount Zion uh, or, or Jerusalem or the mountain of God. And the description is one that is idyllic. It's one that Jerusalem never lives up to in, in its earthly sense, but it casts a vision for it uh, nonetheless. It's not something that was ever realized by the people, but the psalmist and the prophet both point beyond the failure of the people to God, who reigns over this place, who is great. These descriptions are descriptions of what the reign of God looks like when it is embodied in a place and in a people. I just want to take a little bit of a side note on that line from Psalm 122 where it says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, because these scriptures are talking about the reign of God. And oftentimes we might hear uh, in our verbiage or in our language within the context of the church that we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem, as in Jerusalem as it exists now. And there's nothing wrong to pray for the peace of Jerusalem as in um, 
the Israeli and Palestinian conflict, but what is talked about here more or less is the reign of God, the shalom of God. It's not just that uh, the, a war would cease or attack would cease, so to speak, on the city of the people of God. We're to pray for the peace of Jerusalem because that peace represents the reign of God, the shalom of God. So it's more of a sense of pray that this place and this people embody the, the, the life that God has for it as a community of people who are under the reign of God. So it's not simply an absence of conflict, but it's more so uh, pray that these people live up to and live under the reign of God. Okay, so it's not, uh, oftentimes we think about it and we talk about it in terms of a nation state, but this isn't what it's talking about here. We're talking about the reign of God. The psalmist is talking about the reign of God and, and God's desire for God's people to live as people of shalom. So this land uh, that is to come, this restored uh, heavens and earth are great. All the greatness that is described here is not anything that's great because of us, it's great because of the nature of God who is described that is reflected in this city. The description of the nature of Jerusalem under the reign of God points to the greatness of God. And our lives become greater, friends. Your life becomes greater when you reflect the nature of God. And so greatness is very different as we think about in terms of following Jesus versus in terms of how we think about greatness in our society. Celebrity greatness in churches, elsewhere, that's not greatness. Being known is not greatness. What I find fascinating is that as you go back and as you look back in, in the saints of the church, even into the Catholic church, many of them are not known for becoming great people. Many of them are, are known because they learn to die a slow death along the way in submission and reverence to the greatness of God. They didn't seek to become great. They actually sought to get out of the way. They sought to not be leaders. Uh, they are only looked back in some ways historically as saints of the church. They didn't set out to try to do that kind of thing. They didn't set out to be great. I read about Thomas Aquinas late, um, not, not too long ago who, who wrote this huge, huge series of books called uh, Summa Theologica. And, and, and so he writes and he writes and he writes and he's one of the most influential theologians of our time. And then one night at 1030, um, God just shows up and encounters him in a way that he just described as fire and joy and love. And for all the writing he ever did, he never finished that book because from then on, the encounter with God meant it meant more than anything that he could surmise through thinking theologically. Greatness for him was an encounter with God. It wasn't what he could continue to say and say and say. And so greatness comes to us. We become great as God becomes great in us. As we become less, as John the Baptist says, as we become less and as God becomes greater in us. I love the nature of God that's reflected in these passages. The nature of a God who welcomes the diversity of nations and so tribes are going to come into the city, who guides us in the paths of wisdom and righteousness, who guides us in the way that is good. 
who brings about the transformation of those things that are used as weapons, who changes the very nature of them so they can be used for something different. This is a God who transforms the very nature of things, who transforms your nature, who transforms my nature, who transforms the nature of the world around us. This is a God who provides stability and security. This is what's talked about in Zion and in Jerusalem. The city is steadfast, it's unmovable, it's unshakable. And it's not because of, of the inhabitants of the city, but it's because of the God of the city. It's because of the reign of the city itself. And this provides shalom, which is a society and a community of goodness and peace and well-being. God does all this. God does all this, and these are the great things. There is nothing greater that can be done with our lives or in our lives than what God has already done and what God will ultimately do. We can only let, and I think this is part of what it, as we follow Jesus, we allow the greatness of God and the light of God's greatness to shine on us, to change us, and then to reflect that to the world. We are quite small, friends, in comparison to God. And on one hand, I think this is very humbling. This is very humbling. And it humbles our ideas of what greatness should be like. If we think we have to do great things for God, sometimes I think God just says, I've already done everything that is great. You can stop your striving. You can stop trying so hard. And you can just receive my, my presence, my greatness in your life and then live out of that. Sometimes when we try to become great, when we try to do great things with our lives for God, it's not coming from the Spirit of God. That's not the impetus nor the strength that sustains us. But it's us trying to conjure up something in order to be great for the sake of God. God's not asking us to do that. God is asking us to receive the life and the greatness of God within ourselves and to live out of that as our source of strength and life. It begins with God's greatness and and as, as, as church history and as the saints will tell us and as the people of God throughout history tell us, it is not us becoming great, but it is us becoming less and less and less, and God becoming more and more and more. This is why these spaces are so important that Jane's providing next week, because we need to be attentive and we want to develop postures of attentiveness and awareness to God so that we can be aware of the greatness of God, that we can receive the greatness of God in our lives so that we can then live out of that source. So on one hand, it's incredibly humbling But on the other hand, friends, we're entering into the season of Advent uh, this morning. This is the first Sunday of it. And this this is the beautiful story of God becoming embryo small. Have you ever thought of that? God becoming embryo small, making God's home in the womb of an unmarried woman from a no-name town. And And then God in the flesh proceeds to grow up for three decades quietly, with Luke mentioning a small story about his story. This is, this is the nature of who God reveals God's self to us in the person of Jesus. I know there's fanfare and there's angels and there's singing, but the fact is that God shows up small. 
God shows up small. God not only shows up small, but God shows up dependent. God is dependent. Jesus is dependent on Mary to feed him, on Joseph to protect him, on them to guide him. God, in the person of Jesus taking on flesh, not only is small, but God becomes dependent. And I think this, expand, this ought to expand our understanding, our experience, our thinking of, of the nature and the greatness of who God is. It turns out the greatness of God, friends, comes to us in small things, in the quiet ways, and in the normal rhythms of life. Today's gospel says this as much. Matthew 24, 36. But about the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding a handmill, one will be taken, the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Be understanding, but understand this. If the owner of the house had known what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you must also be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Now, depending on your tradition or your background or who you listen to or who you've heard, uh, you might think this passage is about the rapture. A, there's no such thing as the rapture because that's not in the Bible. This isn't about a rapture. This is about readiness. This is about readiness because historically, all throughout the scripture story, there's always an encouragement for the people of God to be ready when God shows up and when God comes. Because, friends, we never know when God's going to show up and we want to be attentive and we want to be ready. But rather, in this passage, what we see is that there is the everyday stuff of life that is happening. And in this everyday stuff of life, you and I are invited to, called to, be ready. In this passage, we hear of eating and drinking. So as you're at the table, as you're getting cups of water, as you're eating, as you're drinking, as you're nourishing yourself every day, be ready. As you're getting married or being given in marriage, be ready. As you're working in the fields or in front of your screen or at your job or wherever it may be, be ready. As you're grinding at the mill, be ready. These folks were simply going about the day-to-day -day doing the, un uh, the unnoticed, very regular, mundane things of life. And into these things, Jesus says, keep watch. Keep watch because you don't know the day or the hour that your Lord will come. Um, could somebody get the kids? Seeger, could you go get the kids? Because we're getting towards communion. And I don't want Brian not to be up here because that would be awkward. Uh, so Jesus says to keep watch. Now, I don't know how many of you have driven by signs that have said this, but I drive by signs with some regularity um, that says, Jesus is coming, are you ready? Um, not my favorite sign, but here's the thing. 
Every time I drive past one of them, I'm like, yep. I'm like, what, what, do you, what do you want me to feel as I'm reading this sign? My, my, my thought is that you want me to be afraid, uh, thinking, oh, do I know where I'm going? Like this dichotomy of heaven and hell that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Are you ready? Jesus is coming. Are you ready? Are you ready to go here and not here? I drive by those signs. I'm like, heck yeah, I'm ready. There's no fear here whatsoever. Bring on Jesus. Like, I want Jesus to come back. And this is what Jesus is getting at, too. There is a readiness about God's people that we are ready to invite Jesus in when King Jesus comes. And so I think what Jesus is getting at here is an alignment with our, of our lives with God, with the life of God, through the things that we're doing every day. So the greatness of God that we, that we read about in Isaiah and in the Psalms, the greatness of God and what God is doing is going to show up in the everyday, small, mundane things that often, more often than not, go overlooked. And so when we wake, we want to be aware of God. When we make the coffee or when we make the tea, we want to be aware of God. When we get the kids to school, we want to be aware of God. When we're working diligently and faithfully, we want to be aware of God. When we're sitting through church, we want to be aware of God. Because you never know when God is going to show up. And if you're only looking for God in the great places, in what we define as great, in the big, in the grandiose, the instantaneous or the spectacular, the thing that you put on the pedestal, if you're only looking in those places, then I can almost guarantee you that you are going to miss when God shows up. And God establishes his reign in the smallest of things, not only in the smallest embryo and womb of Mary, but in the smallness of the bread, in the smallness of the cup, in daily bread, in the daily cleansing of sins, the daily guidance in the right way, and deliverance daily from temptation. The greatness of God is the very nature of God and who God is. It's God's being, it's God's substance. Sometimes, Every once in a long while, it might show up in a grandiose way like the parting of the Red Sea, but most of the times, it's going to be this burning bush that's kind of an odd thing that you actually have to turn aside and look at and see as you're tending your sheep, as you're just in your day. It's more so those times where there's just a turning and aside and a noticing that God is present with you in the everyday moments of life. And that's where God meets you. And so as a people, what we want to do is continue to develop an awareness and a readiness to notice when God shows up among us. In daily bread made from morning dew or from the little way of faith. The small things we do in every day and in the everyday in devotion to God and out of love for Jesus, these things matter. This is where God meets us. And so, friends, uh, I, I want to encourage us this morning. I don't think life is about doing great things for God. Um, I think a life with God is about what the greatness of God does in you 
and what the greatness of God does to you. Amen.